It could be said that we give more control over to technology all the time. Your phone knows where you're going. Your fitness tracker sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake. But what if technology was in control of life in a totally different way? Would you vote for a robot for mayor? Or would you trust it to build your spaceship? What do we give up of ourselves as we let artificial intelligence take the reins? Today, we look at the last three chapters of iRobot, Escape, Evidence, and the Evitable Conflict. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Stephanie Yunker. I'm Jacob Yunker. And I'm Jason Stark. Stephanie and Jacob are newcomers to Isaac Asimov's novels. I am a seasoned reader of them, and together we are going to search through all of them in production order, and we're going to suss out the themes and meanings that exist in them and talk about their relevance for today. Today we are uh, actually talking to each other over the internet. We've been doing in-person recordings, and now we're doing over Zoom. How does that feel to you? I feel like we're trusting robots in a way we should not. Yeah, I don't like, I'm tired of Zoom. (laughs) Right, and and this is only our first time, so this is great that you're already tired of it. (laughs) It's been an awful 20 minutes. I've been teaching (laughs) Sunday school over Zoom. It's kind of like, it's kind of an experiment for us, you know, kind of a test run. I don't know if it's going to be like a a journey through hell or anything to get (laughs) to where we're going, trying to make the jump to through hyperspace. But uh, we're going to see how it goes. And uh, today we're covering the last few chapters for my robot. What did you think of these stories? I thought they were, at, on first read, I thought they were kind of boring, except for um, Escape. Uh, I, I thought Escape was the most exciting, and the next two were really just droning on. Um, but upon a second read, I found the last chapter the most exciting. I thought that they were incredibly optimistic about technology and being a millennial, I disagree about optimism in in most places. So (laughs) pessimistic generation. And I have to say that I found my reactions pretty well the opposite from yours, Jacob. I, I found escape to be one of the ones that I was least interested in throughout the entirety of the book. I think it offers a lot for the lore of the narrative universe in ways that will become clear as we move through the books. But um, I just, it just didn't strike me as all that interesting. Whereas I found evidence and the inevitable conflict to just be like gold mines of thought and ideas and things that have to be wrestled with as far as big notions. They were highly, they were, they were so Asimovian for me. Escape. Upon her return from hyperbase, Susan Calvin is called to a meeting with the CEO of U.S. Robots, along with Alfred Lanning, Peter Bogert, and several other executives. Consolidated, a rival robotics company, has a non-positronic thinking machine that crashed 
while handling data on space warp theory. And they have offered payment to U.S. robots to use their own machine, known as the brain, to diagnose the problem and or produce the design of a space warp engine. It is feared that some three laws dilemma will warp and ruin the brain too. But the hope is that brain, designed with emotions and the personality of a child, will be able to adapt under the right conditions. Calvin attempts to prepare the brain for its task, warning to simply reject any aspects of the data that involve a problem. If it involves the death of humans, it's all right, they don't mind. The brain seems a little apprehensive, but agrees. The information is fed to the brain, and it reports no problems. Rather, it says that it will begin on the building of a ship, which will take two months. Calvin is worried. Something has gone wrong with the brain, which is not easily detectable. Meanwhile, Lanning brings in the best and funniest field testers around to pilot the ship-to-be, Greg Powell and Mike Donovan. Greg and Mike board the finished ship for a casual look around, seeing no accommodations, no food, no drive, no controls, except for a single dial in the control room, which measures distance to a million parsecs, guessing that the ship can't fly. And being just a little creeped out, they head back to the hatch to find it sealed, and then back to the control room to find that they are already in space. Calvin is horrified that the brain has launched the ship and desperately tries to retain her composure, not wanting to push the brain over the edge of a dilemma. By Calvin's careful prodding, Brain says that Powell and Donovan will be fine. The brain is controlling the ship. They will have food to eat, and that their trip will be interesting, although the brain does not say why. Powell and Donovan discover that the ship has food stores, but only beans and milk. It has communications, but only for receiving and no transmission. Lastly, they discover that the ship does travel through hyperspace, taking them an enormously vast distance in an experience that resembles dying and going to hell. Calvin figures out that the hyperjump, which must involve harm to human beings, virtual non-existence in the course of the jump in this case, causes the brain to adapt by developing a sense of humor. So, while Greg and Mike will be fine, the brain has been pranking them the whole time. Powell and Donovan are returned to Earth, and humanity now has the capacity, after some obvious modifications, to travel to the stars. Evidence Alfred Lanning, now Director Emeritus of U.S. Robots, meets with Francis Quinn, a politician who is running in the upcoming mayoral election. Quinn discusses with Lanning an extreme pet theory that he has, that the opposition candidate, Stephen Byerly, is in reality a robot. He never eats, drinks, or sleeps, says Quinn. Lanning denies any such possibility, but Quinn insists that U.S. robots investigate whether it is true, conveniently threatening to blackmail the company otherwise. Anti-robot sentiment is high on Earth and the now-inhabited other planets. And if word spreads that one is masquerading as a human, the consequences for the company, the only maker and lessor of positronic robots, could be drastic. Byerly agrees to meet with Lanning and Susan Calvin. As might be expected, Byerly denies being a robot. Lanning asks him to relieve their problems by simply sitting down to a meal and having his picture taken. He instead 
offers to have a bite of the apple that Calvin has in her purse. Calvin points out something important, however. A humanoid robot would obviously be built to mimic digestion. His eating does not disprove him to be a robot. Byerly ultimately chooses to let Quinn continue in his accusations, gambling that it will backfire on him. Following this, back at his home, Byerly talks with a man he takes care of named John, bound to a wheelchair and severely disfigured. Upon telling John about Quinn's accusations, Byerly consults John on a plan that he has. Quinn meets again with Lanning and Calvin. They discuss that to prove Byerly a robot is nearly impossible. If he follows the three laws, then he could either be a robot or simply a very principled human. If, on the other hand, he breaks one of the laws, that would prove him to be a human. They also discuss the hypothetical construction of an organic humanoid body which could be used for a robot. Lanning says that the making of such would require around two months. Quinn announces his accusations to the public. Slowly but surely, the conspiracy theory gains traction with the anti-robot fundamentalists, and soon the entire mayoral race is consumed by the matter. Byerly continues to not engage with the theory, refusing and protecting himself from invasive search. He has also sent John out of town for a couple of months, in order to avoid the stress of the media circus. About a week before the election, Byerly decides to give a speech, which is held before a very large crowd, many of whom believe him to be a robot. A half-crazed person breaks out of the crowd and approaches, demanding that Byerly hit him. If he is a robot, then he will be incapable. To everyone's surprise, Byerly knocks the man to the ground. The public is convinced that Byerly is human, and he easily wins the election. Later in conversation, Calvin counters that if the stricken man had also been a robot, built for just such an occasion, then the first law would remain unbroken. Calvin ends the conversation by saying that she will be voting for him later on when he runs for regional coordinator. The Evitable Conflict Several years later, Byerly and Calvin converse in his office. He has since been elected as world coordinator, overseeing the different regions of the unified world government. The economic processes of the regions are overseen by the machines, highly advanced positronic brains that can handle the vast circumstantial factors of world affairs, and then, operating by the first law, offer a course which ensures the highest level of prosperity for the people of the world. As a result, poverty is being eradicated, and war may be as well. But due to recent errors of calculation, which have caused production setbacks in several places, Byerly is deeply worried that trouble is brewing, which could lead to a devastating war. Byerly relates to Calvin, region by region, conversations that he has had with the various coordinators. In some instances, specific workers have been identified as having failed in their tasks in ways which Byerly interprets as intentional sabotage against the machines. They belong to what is called the Society for Humanity, a group that believes the machines are taking away humanity's drive and initiative. They are thus trying to shake humanity's trust in the machines by upsetting production with the goal that the machines will be abandoned. The regional coordinators insist that all is well. A little inefficiency here and there is to be expected and is not part of any general downward trend. 
Human initiative doesn't feel any less than it was in light of all the new development. And at any rate, the machines can't really be tampered with. They can be fed incorrect data, but when not consistent with the whole circumstantial picture, the data will not be accepted. And so, Susan Calvin gains an understanding of what is happening. Yes, certain people are attempting to destabilize the system by going against the machine's recommendations, but the machines can detect destabilization and correct it, even to the extent of preventing negative actors from continuing in their activities. The machine's amassed data processing accounts for and corrects problems, keeping humanity on course. Further, because they operate by the first law in relation to all humanity, they work to preserve their function and to prevent their removal. In this way, the machines have a control over humanity that it cannot truly reclaim. So what did you like most about these three stories? That's hard to answer. I feel like each one is so different. You can have a three-part answer if you want to, Jason. Again, it was kind of hard for me to find um, what I really liked about Escape. I like the fact that we get some huge like technological developments in it. We get this idea of warping through space or like making a jump through hyperspace although it isn't really very well defined in the story or anything it's more from an experience point of view than it is defined by the narrator yeah yeah and and what an experience it is right yeah um, i thought the beans and milk part of that story was hilarious that was my favorite part i felt so bad for them i that when he pulled up the can that resembled something like a tuna can and it turned out to be more beans i was so sad for them <laughs> it was so funny <laughs> but i do think there is something that is interesting about the simplicity of the control room and its single dial that only goes from zero to one million parsecs just considering the vastness of the universe and how this technology allows humanity to not be bound to this planet anymore but allows humanity to expand outward pretty much as far as they want to go um assuming you find a habitable planet well they've already got colonies on like venus and stuff so they should be able to inhabit lots of planets well that's true except up until that time i mean it's one thing to go to venus or to mercury or to mars where it's a matter of like months in order to be able to get there and there's fuel burn issues from inner solar system travel and all that but to get to the nearest star um however i mean that is a whole different ball game i mean it would take under normal propulsion it would take thousands of years to get to well, the yeah. nearest star i i meant more like they have the terraforming to be able to okay yeah exist on a planet as long as they can get to it they can exist on the planet yeah and so in in really it's it's almost not like any sort of travel at all yes you're going to this place but you you don't really sense much movement in any in any case except for uh the prank from the from the robot brain that sends you to hell and back when you go 
uh, there's the, no real sensation of movement. You're just kind of there. Now, so for my sake, is it the brain that's giving them the experience of hell and death? Or is it something they experience while getting so close to light speed or whatever speed that is dangerous for humans? I understood from the end of the story that the death was part of the hyperspace jump, but the hell part was the brain because he thought it was funny. And that's also the sense that I got. That is, well, how did he do that? Then? Why did he choose hell? I, I don't know. The story's goofy, you know? I just, it was a little too goofy for me, I think. Yeah, like choose your own casket. You'll be dead a long, long time. Yeah. That, that was really funny. But I found the discussions that arise from evidence and the evitable conflict uh, to be fascinating in their own different ways. Evidence, I just thought, it was, um, I feel like you could, that could easily be like a full-length television episode of something from how well, well the plot develops and how well it progresses from one point to the next and finally reaches a culmination. Very well structured. Yeah. I kind of want to jump into the themes of some of the things we see going through these three chapters. Yeah. So one thing that I saw happening in these three chapters um, is is power again, which is really interesting to me because... Uh, a lot of these stories, like you said, when we started this podcast, um, these stories are definitely chapters, one story, chapters, another story, chapters, and they're separated stories that get woven together afterward. That being said, I feel like power has been a theme through all of these chapters, through all of these stories, kind of in like a coherent way. Um, and it, do it doesn't look like it was done by accident. What do you guys think of that? I agree. I, I would definitely say that there is a method to the structure of how these stories have been put together and how they've been sewn up so that they're connected. I don't know all the details of how they've been sewn up and what's been added here and there, like little dashes of stuff that, that add connecting through lines, but they definitely seem like they are, that they are ordered in a very specific way. Although they do have a generally chronological framework to them too like i've noticed that the earlier stories were earlier written as far as when they were first short stories but i agree with you about the power dynamics in our last episode when we talked about liar and little lost robot those seemed mm -hmm. to have a lot of power dynamic questions that had to do with individuals whereas i think these stories again they start to shift over at least for escape and then really hit it hard as far as power dynamics that involve large groups of people and control over society. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in Escape, we see two companies wrestling with each other only to be bound up by the power that the brain has, not the companies. It's what the brain can do that changes these two companies. And it also involves technology that is going to impact all of humanity as well. So even though it's not about how artificial intelligence has this direct push on like sociological forces or something like that, it is something technological that has huge implications for for society. Huge implications. And then inevitable, no, in evidence, I got to get my E's correct. In evidence, we see it's, it's about the who's got the power is who's playing chess better, right? We see Byerly who's like, I'm going to let Quinn tie up his own noose and then put insert his head you know quinn is trying to figure out if 
Byerly's even a robot. So like, I bet if we can get the U.S. robot core to investigate, then we'll figure it out. And so they're both playing chess with each other. They even have like a phone call or a visor call uh, where they continue this game of chess. But you obviously see that Byerly has the power because he's got he's got the chess down. He's the smartest in the room, mm. which I found is interesting because usually it, the power has been who can outsmart who before, but it's very individual. And then the power became who is capable. And now we're back to who's smarter, but now it affects uh, a whole city, I guess, a mayor. It kind of reminds me of, we were watching the first X-Men last night, and uh, it reminds me of Magneto going, I've made the first move. Yeah. But I would say, you know, Byerly's power is definitely enhanced by the fact that He's not the same kind of robot that we've been dealing with all throughout the rest of the book. Obviously, the brain isn't the same either as the other robots that we've encountered so far. But Byerly is unique in all of these stories. Obviously, he has a, com- a, a complete, very convincing humanoid form around him. Like He's not just metal shaped like a person. He is, from what I read, like ostensibly part organic. So yeah, he's, he's, he's an android. He's human-shaped human. Yeah, and he also has emotional response that is at least highly convincing, if not something that is actually to be called true emotion. To go back to the brain for a second, it says they programmed the brain with emotional pathways, essentially. So it seems as though Byerly is, is enhanced in that way and has sway in that way because... He has all of the mannerisms and appearance of a human being, which gives him a distinct advantage as far as the power game is concerned. Yeah, there seems to be a huge jump in technology from just a couple uh, a couple short stories ago to the brain and to Byerly. There is a big difference in the robots. Yeah, it almost seems like that was purposeful, right? Because like we're introduced to at the beginning or towards the beginning of the book, that there's a lot of anti-robot people on the earth. And so it seems like making a simpler robot would make sense just to get, just to keep them open, right? The simpler a robot is, the easier it is to be accepted by people who don't trust robots because a higher level robot means I have less control over a situation, which means I have less power. Yeah, this actually reminds me a lot of what's called the uncanny valley effect. Are you familiar with that? I am not. No. The uncanny valley effect is, it's this idea that as a robot becomes, or as robot design becomes closer and closer to um, human appearance and human mannerism, that you reach this point where it gets very real looking, but not quite real enough. And it goes from, okay, so imagine that it starts as just like a, a robot on an assembly line that doesn't look anything like a person. It's just doing its job and its function on the line. And then you move from that progressively to robots that look more and more human. The idea is that at first, that is kind of a cool thing, kind of this interesting, comforting thing to the one who's observing it. Mm -hmm. But then you get to this certain point where it becomes uh, just a little far off from human. And instead of becoming like cool and interesting or even comforting, it becomes like repulsive because it's just, there's something yes. that's just not right about it. Yes. We have talked about this, but not 
with that name. So, like, with monsters, there's something unsettling about a monster that is not quite something, like, something that mimics. Yeah, not quite human, but, like, a very deranged form of human is probably the scariest thing out there. Yeah. Which is funny, because I got first introduced to this, which I wish I could remember the psych term for it. But it's it's the uncanny valley. That's why clowns are scary. It's why clowns are scary. And they always have been scary from the beginning. Clowns have always been de- designed to be scary because they're human-ish. Plus, there was that one year where they were chasing us around with knives. So <laughs> Yeah, that was a weird time. But as far as the uncanny valley effect is concerned, I mean, I suppose that's more of a theory, you know? Like, it was thought up several decades ago as something that is like, well, this seems like that's what would happen. And the valley is kind of like if you're imagining it on a graph, that point of revulsion is like the dip on the graph as far as how much you you appreciate and value the appearance of this robot. But whatever um, whatever has happened technologically in the story and in the narrative universe, it's that point where you've come back up out of the valley. And apparently Byerly is convincing enough to convince anybody that he is actually a human being. So so you're on board with Byerly being a robot. Oh, so we're talking about whether he actually is or not. Is that what you're... Uh, that's what I'm bringing up, yeah. Okay. He has to be. I would assume that he yeah. is. I think that he is. Even though, and we're going to get into inevitable conflict soon enough here, but you know, he comes back as a character in inevitable conflict, and there's no talk of whether or not he's a robot at all. Uh, and he asks for help from Calvin as if he were a human being. You know, it's kind of hard to, I do like the way that evidence leaves this mystery about it. But yes, I do believe that Byerly's a robot. Yeah, I think you got to trust Calvin on this one because she's been right every other time. That's true. <laughs> and I think we need to trust Asimov here. Now, if you don't think that Byerly's a robot, then I want to hear your opinion on this, Jacob. But I think we have to trust Asimov too because we have these scenes in the in the chapter where Byerly goes and talks to the disabled old man whose name is John and like they're talking about some plans that you never hear anything about like about the details and and Calvin kind of supplies the little key at the end that makes you understand what all those scenes were intended to mean at least I think that is what is being driven at by Asimov. Is he throwing that at the reader as just like this big red herring? I mean, I don't think so. I suppose it's possible. Yeah, he. it seems like Byerly wouldn't have a place in the story if he weren't a robot. Like he wouldn't belong in the short story. Or it, he would belong in the short story, but he wouldn't belong in iRobot if he weren't a robot. I mean, now I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth here, I suppose. But um, on the other hand, the way that the story investigates the nature of conspiracy theory and the way that conspiracy theories can just take off and develop a mind of their own, it almost raises the question, like, does Byerly actually have to be a robot? Or is it enough to question whether he's a robot in a very anti-robot environment? Uh, to make this story worthy of exploring in the book. I think he has to be a robot because he doesn't have, 
he he doesn't have any reason to like atomize his body. He doesn't have any reason to wear that shield. He doesn't have any reason. I mean, he goes out of his way to punch punch another human being to like prove in air quotes that he's not a robot. That seems silly. Like there are other things that he could have done and continued to prove. It, it just seems like he's trying to get through the loophole. It's very yeah, and I think it's designed to write that way, and and also like he brings up explanations for each one. Like, hey, I'm I care very much about my privacy because I care very much about individuals' privacy. That's kind of dumb. Yeah, it is. I don't. It is both kind of dumb, but also I think it's kind of legit because once you're a uh, once you're a politician, what you say has to be embodied by your life. Otherwise, people are going to tear you up. Yeah, I mean theoretically, but but. Doesn't Especially back in the 1950s when Isaac Asimov was writing this, like a politician has to do what he believes in or she believes in. Okay, this is pre-Nixon, I believe. So you might yeah. have a leg to stand on. I, I have an Asimovian leg to stand on. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that the thing that keeps you questioning throughout the most of the chapter anyway, again, I'm I do land on the side where i do think that byerly is a robot yes and i think the ending of the story kind of serves along that purpose but the thing that keeps you guessing is the fact that if he is just an incredibly principled human being if he has principles about his privacy and he refuses to budge on that just because somebody has concocted this this crackpot theory about him then then it's his right to do so. He says he's going to play the game in Quinn's way, you know? But in another way, he totally does not play into any of the traps that Quinn sets. It's almost like if he weren't a robot, the fact that he has to lower himself and, and lose his dignity to the point that he has to actively, openly deny his being a robot, then that, then that does something for him that is just unacceptable. Yeah, I I see what you're talking about, and there is kind of like a lack of dignity with like, can I not just be a good man? Can good men not just exist? Can can we not just ex have that expectation for one another? I mean, that I, I have would, to be a robot. Sorry, I would quibble, I guess, with your definition of good there a little bit, but let's just ignore that. And it kind of reminds me of, um of the whole issue of people questioning where o President Obama was born with that context of the birther conspiracies, it makes sense that Byerly was like, no, this is dumb and I'm not doing it. But without that context, it does seem very robot-like and very unyielding. Kind of like he's trying to not hurt people by letting them know he's a robot. Yeah, and it's just very rigid. Like a robot. Yeah, I could see that. I land in the camp of I don't want to know. Why not? Because I like I like unspoken mysteries and stories. But Asimov lays it out for you. He lays it out crooked, and I, I just want to appreciate the crook. It's a crooked <laughs> point. It's a crooked arrow that very clearly says robot. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I do kind of want to hope that what he's doing there is is 
offering like a big fake out, you know, because it ends up that societally speaking, the answer to the question doesn't really end up mattering as much as watching what happens to people when the question is up for debate. I think this is kind of a good moment to talk about what the components of a conspiracy theory actually are and what makes a good conspiracy theory. I I saw this on an NPR article that had to do with like 5G towers with that whole thing that's going on with that particular conspiracy theory. And um, what you need is a, on the one hand, you need a plausible element. And that's something that's not necessarily true, but it's plausible. And so in the case of our story here, we have that with this notion that Byerly is a robot. We live in a, we're, we're reading this in a narrative universe that has robots. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility, even if it's, even if it's not proven by any stretch of the imagination. Then after that, you need a real person and theoretically someone who is powerful and or rich. And so what that does is it gives this explanation of a scheme to hold or maintain power. And so we've got that in the character of Byerly, someone who is reaching for power and wants to uh, be elected to this office. And then finally, for a conspiracy theory, you need an element that makes that, that whole idea go viral, as it were. And um, that could be like an existing movement that is already around, or it could be something like in our time, like social media that helps a conspiracy theory to go viral. But in this case, in the story, we have this anti-robot sentiment all over the planet, which means that robots do not actually operate on Earth. And so when you mix together just the kernel of the idea plus the power of the figure that it's being pointed at, and in this case, the all of the anti-robot fervor to kind of stir up the pot, then suddenly you you release this thing into the environment and off it goes. And again, it kind of forms a mind of its own and and goes crazy. And I just feel like this story, it's so beautifully portrays all of that, like so accurately. And what, that was something I loved about the story so much, because conspiracy theories, if you're enmeshed in one, then it's like you can kind of think your way around any objection to it if you really want to. Kind of reminds me of, of reason all the way back a couple episodes with Cutie. You can reason your way around any of the objections that people will throw at you and keep the conspiracy alive in your mind if you really want to because there's enough plausibility that you can come up with workarounds. I was listening to another podcast, uh, The Holy Post with Sky Jathani and Phil Vischer and Christian Taylor. And Sky on that show was talking about the why, like why conspiracy theories even happen in the first place. Like why would someone go after something that's plausible instead of something that's true? Why would someone go after someone that's powerful instead of like my neighbor? And he ends up going back and putting it on power. You know, if I have, if I can understand this, if I can have this secret knowledge of what's really going on behind the curtain, then I have control over my situation to some degree. I can explain the bad things that are happening to me. I can X, Y, Z, which is why I think power is a really good theme for this story still. 
because if it's really a conspiracy theory, a whole bunch of people doing a power grab and the mayor playing chess with that power grab or Byerly playing chess with that power grab, I think it plays out really well. Which then moves us into inevitable conflict, I think, pretty well, too. Yeah. Is that okay if we move over there? Absolutely, is where I was heading to. Yeah. Um, the reason I don't land firmly on Byerly being a robot is not because of evidence. It's because of inevitable conflict. Right. It's because Byerly, throughout inevitable conflict, is asking for hope and help, and he's going to people for information instead of his own divining brain. Um, he, he's just kind of a blank slate. Uh, almost a narrator for what's happening on earth yeah but there's that part in evitable conflict that part where he's talking to susan calvin and he says well what if i don't know enough or what if a robot doesn't know enough to be mayor and she says "Eh, everybody has advisors you know he could just be getting help because his brain is limited and maybe that just kind of gets back to the fact that we can't always assume our own notions of what a robot is supposed to act like and think like um, versus what they actually do act like and think like in these stories. We still don't really know what a positronic brain really ends up thinking like and what a positronic brain has as far as um, intellectual dilemmas or problems that it can't seem to solve. It's just kind of murky. It is murky. And it gets also a little murkier when you think of like if Byerly is robot, then why does the conflict of robots running the place over the heads of humans even matter to him? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's, that's another exactly thing. what he's yeah because that's exactly what he's doing is he's a robot. If he is a robot, then he is a robot over people. Then why would it matter that these giant calculating machines that are running the resources of the planet over the people? behind the scenes, but still over the people. Why would that bother him? Well, he does talk about, no, Calvin talks about a robot would come out of office at a reasonable point in time because they wouldn't want someone to know that they're a robot because that would cause harm. So he is A, a philosophical robot, and B, he's thinking, okay, if people understand that I'm a robot, that's going to cause them harm. It's going to hurt their pride or, or whatever harm it does to human beings so maybe he's questioning this whole a what is my place in the universe and b is are these robots who are over humanity harming humanity uh, by being outright robots or you know are they harming humanity by basically taking away their their initiative and their drive yeah i think with um Evitable conflict, we can look today at the ways, one of the things about that story is that um, machine learning, that feels actually quite accurate as we're reading evitable conflict. We read about these machines, these positronic brains, which with the help of human beings then make a new generation of smarter um positronic brains which then make a generation of even smarter positronic brains this is all very well-worn territory when it comes to talking about the rise of super intelligent ai and um and really what would be called a singularity point where the where a where an artificial intelligence becomes more powerful 
the point where it flips to being more powerful than a human intelligence. I read through this story again very recently, and I found at first, when I first read the story a couple times through, even though I thought it was very interesting, I still thought it was kind of dry. Um, but on my last read through, I just, I developed the sense that this story is absolutely brilliant. And one of the reasons I think so is because of the image of the fireplace that starts the story off. Byerly is sitting in his office next to a fireplace, but it is this thoroughly domesticated fireplace. It's behind, um, it's behind glass and it's wired for sound. Um, it's nothing like the actual practicality of a fireplace it's really just for show and it's pretty much been been all of its potential danger and power has been taken away and i feel as though the fireplace is a metaphor for what is potentially happening to humanity under the control of the machines because um try as and this gets back to power uh, the wrestling of those who are out there who don't like the thinking machines and they want to rock the boat, as it were. The machines are controlling all things economic and making sure that everybody has what they need. And there are people out there from the Society for Humanity is the name of the society who are trying to rock the boat and upset economy and decrease trust in the machines. But they can't really do it because the machine learning of these positronic brains is so powerful by now that they can anticipate anything that's coming and they can now incorporate that into their next set of, of actions based on what they see. And so humanity, try as it might to have this fire of control and this life to it, is really being caged in and made mm -hmm. so that it can't really do anything else other than what the machines say to do. Yeah. And because they have the first law to follow. And, and this is a, before I leave this off for, for my part, um, here we do have something that interesting that happens with the, with the laws. And that has to do with the, the scope of responsibility that the robot has. I mean, if a robot is just, um, if it just has the interactions with an individual, then it has to not harm and prevent the harm of that individual or a series of individuals. But when those robots are placed over humanity as a whole, then suddenly they have the responsibility to not harm and not allow harm to come to humanity. And so that is a very, a very different kind of extrapolation of how the laws work and and that's what what drives them to kind of keep human beings from doing differently than what they're doing i agree entirely and it, it's just fascinating to see how they do it right like one major calculating machine gives the wrong reports to someone who he or the robot thinks should be fired <laughs> and then later when they ask for the same calculations he gives them a new result just to make it look like just to make the guy look bad and get him fired. And I'm like, that's, that's pretty crazy. But it's only the, only a person he thinks would endanger humanity by endangering robots. And note that the person who, um, who gets negatively impacted by all this, they're not like totally put out of a job. 
They're not, their security isn't taken away. They're not killed. It's basically that they're being, that person's just being like defanged or declawed or something like that. Yeah. They're being relocated, neutralized, essentially. And so that, again, it's like it, it has, it raises this question of if humanity doesn't have direction over where their lives are going, then is it still the same kind of humanity? It's like a, it's like a fake Ooh. fireplace. Is it the same fire anymore if it doesn't, if there's no heat really coming from it? And if it doesn't have the real power to do anything, except a, you know, a robot is tossing out the old ashes and giving the new wood. It's like, eh, here you go. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I would say that humans are meant to be like stewards of the planet. You know, we think of ourselves as like the apex uh, a deep basis in theology. So so to have that apex taken away by something that we've created, to take that ability to steward and take care of things taken away, kind of, it, it strikes at a core of what makes us human, I would say. Yeah. And it raises the question for me, what I was thinking about in reading this, is there... Is there some sort of acceptable um, zone? I mean, we do come up with systems of automation and things that help us to to do things ar around us. And you could even consider like, well, I mean, we can come up with ways one day, hopefully, where we can automate processes that help steward the things around us. You know, what if you could automate the planting of trees? so that you're always replenishing forests. You know, that sounds like a very good yeah. and innovative thing to do. It's like, what point, though, do you cross this threshold where you automate so much of, of what you're doing that, that you lose something of yourself? And so I, it's not like I think that you automatically do that when you start automating anything, but mm -hmm. it just means, I do think, though, that if you automate everything, and now everything's on autopilot, machine autopilot, something's gone wrong. That, that I do think. I think it has something to do with decisions and control and power, like Jacob has been kind of talking about. Uh, when you take free will away and, and give it to something that doesn't really have free will, I mean, I, I would say that a robot doesn't really have free will because they are forced to follow the three laws they can't choose to follow the three laws so when the robots have complete control over human life the the humans have to subscribe to the rigidity of what the robots decide um, and at some point in automation you lose the ability to make a decision or so for example you lose the ability to uh, make a decision that a robot cannot make. So we've seen time and time again, the robots getting put into situations where they can't just make a decision one way or the other. They have to follow the laws and the laws are in conflict. Um, maybe a good example of this would be like the death penalty. And I'm sure maybe some of our listeners have a different opinion on the death penalty. And, you know, I, I think we should. That's something we should be arguing about. But um, 
a robot can't make a death penalty decision. Only a human court could. It's it's like there's this point where you automate your own will, your own power to choose. And at what point does that come up? I don't know. It sounds like what we're saying, though. Yeah. Is that fair? I think at the point when you can completely check out of human life, that's a problem. <laughs> This episode of Galaxy is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the number one source for audiobooks and also offers podcasts, guided wellness programs, Audible originals, and more. They have thousands of titles, and that includes every Asimov novel that we will be discussing on Galaxy. From Foundation to iRobot to the end of eternity, Audible has you covered. In prep for our episodes, I have primarily been listening to these books because my job affords that to me, and Jacob has been listening during his to and from work commutes as well. Whether commuting, exercising, or just relaxing at home, Audible is a great way to experience new books as well as your all-time favorites. Right now, you can start a 30-day free trial that includes a free title of your choice and access to Audible's content through the Audible Plus catalog. Visit audibletrial.com slash galaxy podcast to start your free trial today that's audibletrial.com slash galaxy podcast my first worldview question is about the ethics of letting robots be in control inevitable conflict we reach this point where these machines are ensuring that there is no war they're ensuring that there's no poverty or disease. I don't know about disease, I guess. That doesn't necessarily get stated, but you would think that with advances in medical and otherwise technology, that maybe it'd be thrown in there. But at any rate, these machines are guaranteeing that people are no longer being killed on battlefields or, or starving at their tables. There has to be something to say for that. So when we're talking about ethics, it's like, it seems like there's some certain benefit here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, the obviously you want people to be healthy. You want them to have resources that they need, and you want them to not die of preventable causes. Um, that that would be a good thing. It's just I think it's a problem that it's the robots doing it, and it's. If theoretically robots could do that, it still feels wrong to me, even though all of the results are good. So maybe you'd let it happen because the results are good. But it seems like what you're saying, it seems that like at some point humans themselves have to grow up and be held responsible to a higher virtue, right? Yeah, I have this whole, you know, this whole worldview of. There is going to be a day when all of this will be fixed and it will be that Jesus comes back and does that and humans are a part of it. You know, like there's something inherently human wrapped up in the process and, and something about robots doing it is still incomplete. Even though things are getting better, it's still an incomplete process. Yeah, on the one hand, you have, you have the option of the machines doing it all, which great outcome but there's something of the soul of of humankind which is lost in that 
Then you have, then you have the alternative of humans trying to do it. But I feel like Asimov does a very good job of demonstrating that as humans have tried to solve all of these problems throughout centuries, there is still war, there is still famine, there's still suffering, and that and it is because of power. Um, ultimately, human beings have been proven quite untrustworthy of going beyond, say, like the individual level or at least the level of a faction or something like that, and coming to the place where all of humanity can truly be bettered, um, can truly be benefited in the way that the robots can do. And so it's like this very, very like thin knife's edge where how on earth do you maintain the balance where human beings are expressing their agency and their autonomy without it dipping into war and chaos? Or how do you allow machines to help you uh, to rise up above all of those problems, like millennia-long problems, without them just totally um, sucking the life out of what it means to actually be human? And I think that that what you're saying, Stephanie, is that um, I, I really agree when you're talking about how this really does connect to questions of religion and theology. It's like, I feel like humanity is looking for something. I don't know, maybe maybe listeners would disagree on this, you know, but it seems as though we look for things that are that are out there beyond ourselves. We're looking for control to come somehow and to help write what we can't seem to write. Yeah, and I think with robots, the robots fix the symptoms. They fix the symptom of war. They fix the symptom of poverty. And maybe even they fix the symptom of, of disease or, or physical death, but there's still a cause that's wrong. Like there's still something wrong with us that if we somehow wrested control back from the machines, we would go back to killing each other and hoarding resources for ourselves. Like there's still something wrong with us, even if we have been chained to, uh, you know, do good. Yeah, people still suck. Um, so if, if I can, I actually, it made me think of Maslow's hierarchy of, of self-actualization, um, because, uh, it sounds like to a psych brain, what you guys are talking about is how do we get all of humanity to, to get to an agreeable point of good for each other and for oneself and for the creation, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is one that actually has gotten into psychology in a deep, deep way that everyone is inherently ha has a path of good that they can follow. And Maslow's hierarchy, right? It, it's like a pyramid. There's a foundation and you have to have that foundation before you go up a step and so on and so forth. Um, and I was looking at it and like the basics, food, water, shelter, illness, not dying. Uh, that's only like step one of Maslow's hierarchy. So even if we totally accept Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for self-actualization, for not being a sucky person. The basics, which is what the, the robots provide, is only the first step. And robots can't provide the next step, which is safety and safety in relationships, to be completely trusted and trustworthy and 
so on and so forth. Like robots can't even do that second part. Or if they can, like they do and one could could possibly do in Byerly, that's only two steps. You still need the next three or four. Can you run those down? It's been yeah. a while. Oh, they're good. So the lowest stage contains the most basic needs such as food, water, and shelter. Um, the second stage represents a safety. Uh, there's no looming threat. Um, and that threat is both physical and emotional, right? So no threat of being chopped off from relationship, but no threat of being chopped off, period. So those are lower brain functions, right? Lower, that's a biology of the brain is not what I'm talking about, but yes, you're still right. Okay. Um, the third step includes um, a sense of belonging in a community, right? And I like that Maslow brings it up or... I think I might be reading into it. I don't know if Maslow himself says it needs to be in a community, but um, to have your niche, to have your cog in the watch, right? You have to have a role you fill in other people's relationships. Um, the fourth stage is respect and competence. Um, that, this, one is, this is where it gets a lot more abstract and, uh, and, and less concrete, but uh, a confidence in self and a confidence in others around you. I kind personally, I think that leans back on trust and safety, um, but I think he's talking about something a little bit more um, deep. And then the fifth stage is is you have a, a role, you have a purpose, you have a goal for what your life is supposed to be like, and you're getting there. Um, and and I oh you know what I think I remember what the self esteem one it's self esteem for yourself and people who as a, as a whole. Right, you can have respect and esteem for people as a whole. Right, everyone's got a place. Everyone's got a relationship. Everyone's got their own path they're on. Um, it's a pretty big one. Hmm. And then the tip, the self-actualization is: I don't want to murder anybody. I'm really kind, really generous, but I'm really wise. I hold a lot of things in tension. Um, so like if we come back to our our story, right, and the robots rule the the planet, all the resources. We still have people who are um, worried about their safety, the, the, the Society for Humanity. They're still worried about their own safety. They're on step two. And the robots run the whole world. So what's, go what's going on? You know? Yeah, if anything, the robots, the machines are in some ways meeting the needs along the lower ends of the hierarchy. But I would say they're um, quite... Um, quite potentially detracting from the needs on the higher levels of the hierarchy. Um, that yeah, is, that's a good way to put it. As long as they, as long as humanity doesn't realize that they're in control, then maybe that helps. But if you realize that they're in control, then suddenly that is that kicks the legs out from under self-esteem and confidence, and, and having a place in society. You're we're right. having yeah, we're having a direction that you're going because the machines are taking you there. It's not mm -hmm. your own. It's not your own direction. So maybe a good compromise then would be like let the machines take over economic systems and things like that where they are providing for other people, but then you still have human governments that are attempting to help people find actualization, and you know you'd have to be careful because that could quickly devolve into theocracy and nobody wants that but yeah we'll, you know, we'll get to, to theocracy later you could think about 
that sort of thing. Like, and I don't even know if government is capable of working to uh, help with the, the higher level need. Human beings have to be involved in that process. What an interesting conversation. So as we close up, we're really interested to hear your questions and your feedback on our discussion of the whole novel iRobot. Please get in contact with us. Let us know if you have questions and we'd love to discuss those. Yeah, I want to hear where I've been totally wrong. Or right. Uh, yeah, we want to hear what lines we've been transgressing when it comes to people's views on Asimov. Uh, we want to hear if what we've been talking about has been looking at it in like a fresh new way that you hadn't thought about before. If you want to do that, there are several ways. You could send us an email at contact at galaxypodcast.com. So you can hit us up on Facebook, uh, Galaxy Podcast. You can leave comments. You can leave us messages. Um, we're also interested to hear if there's any other worldviews or points of view that we don't have already on the show. So please represent yourself. Um, also, as we move on from contact stuff, remember that you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to our website, galaxypodcast.com, you can see several subscribe badges for different apps that you can click on. Or if you have a secondary app and if you can't find us in your search, our RSS feed is there and you can punch it in manually, manually into your app of choice and find us that way. So we do hope that you would subscribe. We hope also that you've enjoyed the episode and uh, that you have enjoyed as we've talked through iRobot. Please send us your questions, your comments, your feedback, and uh, anything else that you can think of. We'd love to respond to those and discuss them in our summative podcast. Yeah, that's right. The next episode will be kind of our retrospective, and we want you to be a part of that too. So send us your emails, send us your messages. So until next time, thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. This has been Galaxy. Galaxy.